We're in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37 this morning. Most of you know the story we're gonna look at. Hopefully you're gonna get a different look at it. You know, you can do an experiment. I'm, I'm asking you not to do it right now because I know you have smartphones and you could. But uh, when you get home, do a little experiment. Go to your search engine, whatever search engine you happen to use. Type in Good Samaritan, just those two words. And don't just hit return because that'll give you all sorts of, lots of sermons and things like that. If you hit news instead, there's a little option for you to hit news. And it'll show you news stories, recent news stories with the term Good Samaritan in the headline. And you'll be amazed. I did this yesterday and there were dozens, I didn't even read them all, dozens of headlines about Good Samaritan rescues car crash victim from, from his wrecked car. Good, you know, Good Samaritan uh, intercedes in holdup and rescues Teller. Good Samaritan opens his home to refugees from Afghanistan, things like that. This is a common term in our culture. And every time I see it, I wanna wonder how many of the people who read that term, who write that term, who use that term actually know that it comes from scripture? If you pay close attention, there's a lot of cliches we use, a lot of, uh, of sayings we have that come straight from the Bible and most people don't even know it, and this is one of them. But even more importantly, most Christians know this story. I would say next to the parable of the prodigal son is Jesus' most well-known parable. I learned it when I was a little boy. To me, as a little boy, it was just a story about a nice guy who helped out a man who was in trouble. And in, in many ways it is. But as I got older and I really studied the details of this story, who it was spoken to, the context in which it was told and the details that were used, I realized this is bigger than that. This is a story that when you really get down to it, is not very comfortable for us. It convicts us, it, it, it shows us our need to change. Um, so. I wanna start by saying it back in September, September 1st of 1983. I was in eighth grade and I remember reading a news story. Now here's the backstory to that news story. There was a Soviet pilot, a pilot of the Soviet Union named Osipovich who volunteered for extra night duty. He, he, he volunteered to fly some night patrols because he'd been invited to speak at his child's elementary school to talk about world peace. So Major Osipovich volunteered for this extra time flying night patrols to get the time off to, to give his speech on world peace. And one of those night patrols, he saw a large aircraft traveling over Soviet airspace. He engaged it, he shot it down, and it went up in flames. And only later did he find out that was Korean Airlines Flight 007. It was a, a, just a regular airline. Uh, 240 people died, innocent people, no military targets at all. Isn't it ironic that a man who was getting ready to talk about world peace nearly started World War III? I can remember being in eighth grade at that time and thinking, oh, are we about to go to war with the Soviet Union? Things had just gotten hot. See, talk is cheap. It's easy to say, this is what it takes to bring world peace, but your actions prove what you're really about. We call ourselves Christians, and I wonder how many of us know what that actually means. You know, the term Christian literally means little Christ. So when you say you're a Christian, you're not just saying there's this certain set of precepts in the Bible that I believe and agree with. I believe that this man who lived 2,000 years ago was the son of God. No, it's bigger than that. It's, it's bigger also than saying I'm a member of a church. And it's bigger than saying I went through some rituals so I can go to heaven when I die. To call yourself a Christian is to say I am choosing to pattern my life after this man I choose to follow, 
the Son of God who lived a perfect sinless life and died for the sins of all humanity. That's who I want to be. And the Holy Spirit, as I follow him, if I follow along, if I allow the Holy Spirit to do this, he is making me into his image day by day, step by step. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's one thing to say it, are you willing to live it? The whole point of this series is that when we say we are trying to be a good Christian, what we usually mean is, I'm reading my Bible, I'm going to church, I'm abstaining from things that I know are bad, I'm avoiding some of these sins that, that trip up the rest of the world, and all of that's good, I don't want to discourage any of that, but if that's all you do, then that's more like the Pharisees than like Jesus. And what we want to look at today is how Jesus takes responsibility The start of the series, we looked at how from the very start of the Bible, from the very word go, the Bible tells us that what it means to be a man or woman of God is to take responsibility for the people around you who are hurting. And then ever since then, we've been looking at how Jesus' life shows that. He never passed by someone who was struggling. Last week, Alan talked to you about how Jesus invested in his 12 disciples. Think about it. Here's a guy who has essentially three years to accomplish the most important mission in human history. And he spends an inordinate amount of time with just these 12 guys. Why? Because he knows that he can have an impact when he stands in front of a a crowd of thousands on a mountainside and talks, but he can have a much bigger impact when he invests on people one-to-one. And that's why that's what our church is about. I love preaching the gospel. I'm glad y'all pay me to do it because I love it. And I'll do it until I die or I don't have any brain cells left to do it. But My sermons aren't gonna change the world. You're gonna change the world one heart, one family at a time as you invest in others. So with that as a a long introduction, let's pick up the story with verse 25 of chapter 10 because what we're gonna see here is there's a tendency inside of us that just absolutely wants to reject that idea of what it means to follow Christ. So verse 25 says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, usually when we read this story or we hear the story taught, we just hear the story. The reason I gave you the the background information is it's important to note, who is Jesus telling this story to? He is telling it to a lawyer. And when you hear the word lawyer, don't think of lawyers today, don't think of attorneys at law. This man's job was not to interpret the United States Constitution, which of course hadn't been written for 1800 more years to come. He was an expert in the law of Moses. We would compare him today to 
a theologian, a seminary professor. He spent all day, every day, discussing, debating, meditating upon, reading, memorizing the first five books of the Bible and the works of the rabbis ever since then. He was also a man, we can be sure, who was extremely moral. You don't don't have that job as a teacher of the law unless you live out what you're teaching. So you and I could have followed this guy around 24 seven and we never would have caught him in a sin. He was extremely moral. And we can also see that he's also intellectually curious. He wants to know more about God. We know this because when Jesus asks him, what does the law say? He says back to Jesus something Jesus had already said. When he says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, where did he get that? He got that from Jesus. Someone asked Jesus that question. Jesus said those words, those, those two verses from Leviticus, and this lawyer heard it and said, that's a good answer. I'm gonna remember that. So in every way, this guy's got a lot going for him. This guy has many qualities that we as religious people admire. And yet, in verse 29, we see his real character. Because I got, I got news for you, okay? And, and you probably never thought you'd hear this. There is a dark side to religion. There is such a thing as bad religion, even religion that is doctrinally correct, even religion that is focused on the one true God. The dark side of religion is when you lose sight of the gospel, this is what you become, okay? Verse 29, he says, and wanting to justify himself. See, there's two dangers in this this statement. Wanting to justify himself. See, that's how our heart is built, We don't want grace. The gospel is such good news. Why doesn't everybody receive it? Because most people don't want to believe they can't do it on their own. Deep down inside, we're all that way. Remember when you, maybe you don't, remember when you were a little toddler and your mom and dad were trying to help you? No, 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 I can do this. You couldn't, but you thought you could. One of the dark sides of religion is that it makes you think you're good because you go to church because you follow some rules. And let's be honest, most of you in this room, I would bet, are natural rule keepers. You're the kind of people who didn't get into trouble at school, who did what your parents asked, your your teachers loved you, your parents were proud of you. Now maybe there's a few rebels in here who, you know, got their hair cut in a way their parents hated and dated boys their dad despised and that kind of thing. But most of us were rule keepers. That's, That's the kind of person that tends to be attracted to churches. And we follow the rules and we go to church and we memorize the scriptures and we think that makes us good and we grow superior. I want you to understand something you've heard, but I wanna say it again. You're not really saved until you come to the point where you say, Lord, I can't do this. Until you come to that point where you admit, morally, I am bankrupt. I need for you to rescue me, Lord. That's what salvation is. Y'all, there's, there's someone in this church, and I, I'm not gonna give his name, but he's told me he was a deacon in another church before he realized he'd never actually been saved. He'd been trying to do it on his own. He'd been trying to do it by being religious, by being moral, and then one day he realized, I've never received the grace of God through Jesus Christ and got saved. And maybe that's true of somebody in this room. Maybe somebody in this room that is older than I am and has never given their heart to Christ, and you have the opportunity as soon as the service is over to do that. But there are a whole lot of people in this room who would say, my salvation was genuine, Christ rescued me, I can remember the day. But ever since then, you've been living on your own strength. 
You've been building a religious resume instead of walking by the gospel. And just like you can't be saved until you admit you're morally bankrupt and call upon the grace of God, you can't live the Christian life unless every day you wake up and say, Lord, if I walk out that door without your grace, without the leadership of your Holy Spirit, without your power, I'm gonna do something that's gonna wreck my family and, and set off a time bomb in my church and drive people away from Jesus and, and, and make decisions that I'll regret. I need you every single day. That's the way to live. Don't justify yourself. Cry out for God's mercy and grace every single day. But there's a second thing that shows this man's character. It says, wanting to justify himself, he said, and who is my neighbor? Because he had just said the words, if I'm gonna be right with God, it means I need to love my neighbor, but, but Lord, who does that really mean? I know that's in Leviticus, but okay, so does that just mean my fellow Jews? Does it mean God-fearing Jews, you know, Jews who actually keep the rules and, and stay on the right side of the, of the law of Moses? Does it, does it mean people who I personally approve of and like? I mean, where do we draw the line? Isn't it interesting? This is the other thing. Isn't it interesting that religious people like us, we never wanna limit religiousness or morality. You'll never hear anybody in this room tell somebody, you go to church too much, you should stay home. Oh, you, read, you spend too much time reading the Bible. You know, pick up a novel once in a while or watch TV. You'll never hear anybody in this room say, you know, what you really need to do is, is go out and commit some sins. You need to sow your wild oats. Nobody in this room wants to limit religiousness or morality, and neither should we. But we're constantly finding, finding reasons and excuses to limit love. We're constantly looking at people and saying, yeah, that's, that's too bad, that's a shame, but it's not my problem. It's not my business. I mean, he got himself into this. Uh, to help him would be to condone his, his lazy behavior. I, I, I can't help them, I, I'm too busy. Look, I've got, I've got small children. I can't, my, my time is, is completely uh, just wrapped up in raising these kids or in, in taking care of my parents or in, in trying to get ahead at my work, somebody else will help. We've got all kinds of reasons not to invest in other people. We wanna limit religiousness and morality. We don't wanna limit those things, but we wanna limit love. That's why we're more like this lawyer than like Jesus. Because Jesus never once passed a person by who was hurting, never once failed to stop and render aid. And by the way, if you think this story is just about a random act of kindness, you're about to find out differently. So Jesus is the master storyteller. If you like reading novels, if you like watching movies, understand this. The greatest storytellers who've ever lived are just stealing from the master, and that's Jesus. Jesus was the greatest storyteller ever. There's, there's this movie, it came out probably 20 years ago. You know, back when Mel Gibson, it was still okay to like his movies, remember that? Uh, so it's a remake, it's called Ransom, it's a remake of a movie from the 50s with uh, uh, Glenn Ford, right? But in this version, the more modern version, uh, Mel Gibson is uh, the CEO of an airline. So a super rich guy, his, his son is kidnapped. Now the, the other main character in the movie is Gary Sinise. Remember Lieutenant Dan from uh, Forrest Gump? So, so Lieutenant Dan is a cop in this movie and he's investigating the case. Halfway through the movie, there's this scene where you realize that Lieutenant Dan has figured out where the boy is hidden, where, where they're keeping him. 
And you watch him as he draws his gun and walks down this long, dark corridor into this, into this building and finds the little boy. And you're thinking, hooray, the good guy has come and rescued the, the victim. But then you find out that Lieutenant Dan is on the side of the kidnappers. The rug gets pulled out from under you. That happens in this story too. Because Jesus tells a story about a situation that everybody in that culture would have been familiar with. Everybody knew the road between Jericho and Jerusalem was dangerous. If you go down that road alone, it's, you're taking your life in your hands. And so everybody who's ever traveled that way has thought, yeah, one of these days, someday, I could get jumped by bandits. I could get beaten. I could get robbed. I could get left for dead. Everyone can identify with, with what's going on there. So as Jesus is telling the story, they're all thinking, oh my goodness, I hope he's okay. And then, and then along comes a priest. And in this story, that's like a cop showing up. The good guy has arrived. He's gonna rescue me. He's gonna take care of me. Because what is a priest in that culture? A priest is the one who represents God. The priest is the one who stands in the temple and makes intercession for our sins so we can be forgiven. So of course he's gonna stop and help somebody who's been beaten. But no, he just keeps on walking. And then along comes a Levite. Levites were members of the tribe of Levi. That was the priestly tribe. So Levites were not priests, but they were religious workers. Their lives were dedicated to serving God. Again, perfect opportunity. We might see it today as a deacon or a life group leader. Yeah, he's gonna help me. She's gonna help me. No, he keeps on walking. And again, we can put ourselves in the shoes of those two, can't we? And, and Jesus' original listeners could as well. They, they would say, well, I guess if I were that, that priest or that Levite, I mean, he's been in, in Jerusalem, which means he's been doing his religious duty, his, his temple uh, time of the year. And so he's eager to get back to his wife and his kids. And, and yeah, it is a dangerous road. And maybe this guy, maybe the bandits left this guy by the side of the road as, as a trap. Maybe he's baiting them. So, so I go down there and help him and they jump me too. Or, or maybe he's dead and I go down there and touch him and then I become unclean. And as a religious person, of course, I don't want to be unclean. And, and by, besides, I mean, I'm just one guy. Surely someone else will come along behind me and help. Isn't that the fallacy, the, the bystander effect we talked about the first week of this series? But the priest passes by, the Levite passes by, and then, and then along comes the Samaritan. Again, we see the genius of Jesus as a storyteller because there was incredible hatred between Jews and Samaritans. And I've known that my whole life. Grew up in church, I heard this sermon over and over again. What I was always told was Jews hated Samaritans because, because Jews were proud of their racial purity while, whereas Samaritans were of mixed race. They were part Jewish, part Gentile. And that is part of it. But it's deeper than that. There were theological conflicts. The Samaritans had their own temple on their own mountain. They believed they were the one true people of God and the Jews weren't. But even bigger than that, if you go back and read the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is the story of, of a Jewish man in exile in Babylon who is given a commission, or in Persia that is, who is given a commission by the Persian emperor to come back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem where they have sat collapsed and broken for over 70 years. In that time, to have a city without a wall around it was like having a, a city without a police force. It just meant any crime, any crime could happen unhindered. And so Nehemiah comes back, he assembles a work crew, they're doing this important work. There can be no city of Jerusalem until those walls are finished. And who opposes him? Who, who are the ones who come up and, and threaten to kill everybody on that work crew? Who are the ones who pull political strings to try to get the work stopped? Well, among others, the Samaritans. 
So this is a conflict that goes back centuries. The irony, the incredible irony of us calling this the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is not a term that's found in scripture, by the way, is if you went back in time and said, oh, hey, it was kind of cool that Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, and everybody there would say, the only Good Samaritan's a dead Samaritan. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. So for this guy to be laying there half dead and to see a Samaritan walking up would have thought, okay, he's just gonna come finish me off. Or at best, he's gonna pass by. But instead, this man does the unthinkable. He shows love. We need to keep in mind, what, is, what, is, what do we mean when we say love? We don't mean that this Samaritan looked at this Jew and said, I like that guy. I, I, want, him, I want him to go drink some wine with me and, and we're gonna play some cards and we're gonna be big buddies. This was nothing about feeling. I am sure that the average Samaritan hated the average Jew just as much as the average Jew hated the average Samaritan. Love is not how you feel. Love is what you do. Now, this is something I say in every wedding I do, which may explain why I don't get asked to do many weddings. Here's this beautiful young man and young woman dressed in their best. It's, it's a beautiful thing, right? And I tell them, this isn't love. Not yet. Okay, this is the start of love, and I'm glad God's brought you together, and I, I pray for blessing upon you, but it's not love until it hurts. It's not love until it costs something. It's not love until it's a sacrifice, until you look at him and look at her and they're not beautiful anymore. You look at him and he's, he's you know, squandered all the money or, or, or she's you know, picking on you and you're, you just don't wanna talk to her anymore. When, when it costs something and you choose to put them first, then it's love. This Samaritan loves this Jew because he sacrifices his time. He sacrifices his animal, his ride. He can't ride on a donkey anymore. He puts this man on it instead. He has to walk. He sacrifices his safety. He sacrifices his money. Two denarii is two days wages. And then he leaves a blank check with the innkeeper. Hey, if there's any other bills when I get back, innkeepers were not good people in that culture. He's putting a lot on the line here. But you know what else? You may miss this. He's sacrificing his own prejudice. And I know it's not polite to say, but there is a pleasure, a, a depraved pleasure that we take in looking down on certain classes of people. All of us are this way by nature. This is why racism is such a pervasive sin that will never be fully conquered until Christ returns. Because everybody deep down inside feels a sense of comfort. If they can look at a certain class or certain race of people or certain political party and say, those people are terrible. I can't, yeah, but we're not like that. He has to sacrifice that. He has to sacrifice the ability to say, I don't know anybody in that group. He has to go down there and love that person. And that's hard, but it's what he does. So Jesus, the master storyteller, tells this incredible story and then he turns the lawyer's question around on him. Remember, the lawyer asks, so who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love, Jesus? And Jesus turns it around at the end of the story and said, so who was the neighbor to that man? Who was his neighbor? And notice, the lawyer can't even say the words, the Samaritan. He can't even say that. So instead he says, the one who had mercy upon him. Jesus said, yeah, go and do likewise. Now, what is he saying to us? Because if all you take from this is, if I see somebody who's broken and bleeding by the side of the road, I'm gonna stop and help them. That's not what this story's about. 
If you would say to me, Jeff, I don't care what color they are, I don't care what kind of car they're in, I don't care how they smell or how they're dressed, I don't care if they've got a bumper sticker on the back of their car that says they voted for that other guy. I'm still gonna stop and help them. You know what, I believe you. I've been in this church six years now, and I know most of you well enough to know that's the kind of people you are, and I believe that. But this is not about random acts of kindness. This is not about something you can smooth over in an hour or two and, and spend a couple of bucks. This is, this is about loving those who God brings into your life. This is about when you see someone hurting, when you see someone in need, it's about saying, that's my responsibility. It's about not justifying yourself and not limiting your love. And most of these situations are gonna take more than a couple of hours. When you're, when you're around somebody who's going through a painful divorce, when, you're, when, you, when you get to know someone who's in an abusive relationship or a single mom whose ex doesn't help with the kids or a, a kid at school who's being bullied uh, or, or a guy who's, who's struggling with suicidal thoughts or uh, a person who is taking care of his dying spouse and is all alone in that house with, with her, trying to nurse her as she lives out her final days. And beyond all that, it's all those people you meet every day in class, at work, in the grocery store, in your day-to-day -day life. And you know, as far as I know, that person has no relationship with Jesus. And we wanna put on blinders and say, it's not my problem, it's not my problem, it's not my business. And God is here to say, you saw it. I enabled you to see it. That means it is your business. That means you should at very least be praying for that person. You should be entering into their pain, bearing their burdens alongside of them. And asking God, what more can I do? That's what we mean when we talk about transforming relationships. And would you do me a favor? There are cards that should be in the pew rack if, if people in the earlier services took them all. Go out this door, turn right. The transforming relationships table is right under that, uh, right under that TV screen and grab a card and just write down, here's a person I'm investing in. And maybe you say, well, I don't know what I can do. That doesn't matter. God brought them to your attention, write their name down or their initials if you don't wanna give us their name and something about the situation and just say, this is what God has placed upon my heart. Pray for me. And that tells us, that tells us whether we're actually accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish as a church. Because I got news for you. Our church is growing numerically. That's great. That's wonderful. That's a lot of fun for me. It's a lot better than the opposite way. But we could go from six or 700 on Sundays to six or 7,000 and still be worthless in the kingdom of God if all we do is go to church, if all we do is draw a crowd. We are called to be people who don't just know the Bible, who don't just go to church, who don't just avoid sin. We actually make a difference in the lives of others one-on-one, -on -one, like the Samaritan. That's what we're called to do. Now, are there times when you get involved, when you invest in someone and after a while you have to step back and say, I've done all I can. I need to stop. Are there times when you get taken advantage of? Are there times when people who love you come to you and say, okay, you need to disconnect from this person because they are using you? Yeah, that will happen. That's one of the downsides of following Christ is sometimes it gets hard, but it doesn't mean you stop. You keep on finding people that God has placed in your path who are hurting. That's our calling. And if we're not about that, then let's just close the doors. Because you can get a sermon on podcast. You can watch TV and get church. But if we're gonna be a, a real church, we're gonna be a church that 
where every person is involved in the lives of others, making their lives better. This story is about not being able to walk away when we see someone in need. It's about saying, Lord, I can't pass this by. I know it's my business because you've made it my business. And the reason why it's our business is that Jesus looked down on us 2,000 years ago and we were the ones broken and bleeding. And he went further than the Good Samaritan. See, Jesus had all kinds of excuses, any number of excuses and all of them valid. Why not to get involved with us? He could have said, it's your own fault you're in this position. And that was absolutely true. He could have said, I, this is not my problem. Again, absolutely true. He could have said, the cost is too great. To get involved with you will cost me more than you're worth. That's true too. I don't know if angels talk back to God, but if they do, I guarantee you, they were talking back to God on the day Jesus came into this world. They were saying, Lord, why would you let him go down there? They are not worth it. Why do they mean so much? Just make a new batch, right? Start fresh. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus sacrificed even greater than the Samaritan did. He didn't just bind up our wounds, he took our wounds upon himself. He became broken so we could be made whole. That's what the cross is. He, he bled so that we could go free. He died so we could live. And that means if we truly wanna be like Jesus, then we'll wanna love like he loved. And we'll constantly ask him, we'll never stop asking, Lord, who is it that I'm supposed to be investing in right now? Who is it that I'm supposed to be helping right now? Show me the way. That is what it means to follow Jesus. It's loving without exception.